one of the lies that we have believed for centuries is that family is a biological institute it is not it's about love care and the relationship that you have with each other so i think the church has to start to bring in that mindset change within the believers so it will spread because if we can start institutions to influence others why can't we promote alternative care in the same manner Welcome to the Mindshift Podcast. I'm Krish Kandaya. Around the world, there are around 5.4 million children in orphanages. Each year, millions of pounds and dollars are sent to support orphanages and thousands of people volunteer or visit them. The best evidence shows that orphanages are not good for children and there are far better ways for vulnerable children to be cared for. A mind shift is needed and that's why this podcast exists. Naomi Silva is a consultant at the Ministry of Women and Child Affairs in the Sri Lankan government. She's the advocacy lead at the organisation called LEAD. And she's brilliant. She is making such a difference. I know just in the next week, she's organising a government-wide event looking at the legislative change that's needed to change the system in Sri Lanka for children in orphanages. And she's driven by a personal passion. So you're going to love this story. You're going to love this interview. And hopefully some of Naomi's vision and character and passion will transmit to you. You're also going to get to meet Sahani. And Sahani is an independent consultant on child welfare and child advocacy. And she too is driven by a passion to make sure children in Sri Lanka get the care that they need. And in often a male-dominated culture, these two women are really punching above their weight to make a huge impact on the system. And I hope as you hear this, you will be inspired and challenged. They talk straight. Be ready. You will be challenged to think differently and act differently about this subject. Well, I'm excited to be sitting next to Sahani Fernandez and Naomi Silva. Sahani, tell us a little bit about your role, your job. Well, I'm a counsellor at an international school and I'm also a consultant for um, child welfare and child advocacy. So, independent consultant. Independent consultant, sounds very good, in Colombo, Sri Lanka. And Naomi? I'm a lawyer by profession and also I work as a manager advocacy for Leeds. Leeds is a local non-government organisation and also I'm currently involved with the Ministry of Women and Child Affairs as a consultant. We are talking about child welfare reform so I find it quite interesting to hear about maybe a, a precious childhood memory that you might have that will help us begin to think about this area. So, Naomi, what do you think? Can you give me a, a precious childhood memory? Yes, whenever a person asks me this question, my mind goes to my childhood. My father used to have a motor bicycle. So there's three of us, me, my sister and my brother. All five of us used to go in the same motor bicycle. <laughs> it's wonderful. I just love that memory. <laughs> we go to church, we go to school. Everywhere we go, we go in the same motor bicycle. Wow. Actually, only two people can ride in a motor bicycle, but the whole family <laughs> goes in. I love that memory. That's good. I, I've seen that happen in countries like Malaysia before. I always can't imagine how it works. Like, how do you actually get on without everything falling over? First, my father and mother get in, and then my sister goes into my mother's lap, and then my brother is in front, and I goes in right at the back. <laughs> and then I'm the elder, so I can hold on. So I've been right at the back. Wow! And up to what age was that possible? I think we did it until I'm 15. Really? <laughs> yeah. And was it 
exhilarating or terrifying? No, it's nice. I just love that experience. It's not terrifying at all <laughs> because we trust a lot in our father and we put all our trust in him. We know that he will take us carefully. So, it's a wonderful experience. Unfortunately, uh, two years ago my father died in a motor bicycle oh, accident no. and then that clashes with my memory also. <laughs> it's a lovely picture of of family intimacy, isn't it? That you're traveling together, you're physically close, the wind in your faces, that sense of trust and hope that you have a trusted adult that's going to get you somewhere safely that is a beautiful picture and i guess children that are in institutional care they miss not just the kind of fun of being on the open road but knowing that they have parents that are going to take them somewhere safely that there's some direction to their lives as someone thinking about their future and their safety and their security that's a very powerful picture Naomi how about you Sahani what's your early childhood memory well there's several different themes in one package my biggest memory that i have is just being carefree and interacting a lot with the community and the neighborhood my parents worked a lot to put food on the table but i was just roaming around playing cricket with the boys out in the street climbing trees going from to neighbors houses they would feed me give me tea and just that atmosphere where you could just connect with the neighborhood i could literally say that the neighborhood raised me that is beautiful and often when it comes to institutional care they are often placed deliberately in isolated places i don't know if it's true in sri lanka but for the small number of residential homes here in the uk local residents are often not happy to have one near them because they stigmatize the children they're worried about crime or noise and so they tend to be far out of town and therefore you lose that community connection is that the same in sri lanka um yes and no i think that's the same for like the detention and correctional facilities right. i find that that stigma is there but i think most of the homes the community plays a small part in that they do go and give one time donations right. or those kinds of things to maybe fulfill religious obligations so i see that a little bit it hasn't totally left sri lankan community but there is that differentiation of the juvenile justice the kids that go into that system as opposed to regular children Yeah, so yeah. in places like South Africa and Uganda often the larger orphanages and children's villages it's about availability of land and often the further away you are from towns and cities the cheaper the land is and sometimes the land is gifted and so these communities are often very separate so everything happens within the compound children don't go to local schools they don't interact with local people in fact one of the ways that child protection is enforced is by you know walls and guards and so there is this isolation but your childhood was very different well as they say in africa it takes a whole village to raise a child it sounds like you've experienced some of that name it gives a little bit of a picture of the sri lankan care system what's happening to children how many children are in care what are the kinds of ways that they are cared for actually uh, sri lanka has more than 13000 children in institutional care at the moment and we have more than 400 institutions in the country and then there are different types of institutions where you have safe homes you have voluntary homes remand homes certified schools and then there are homes run by the religious community so the religious community actually plays a vital role in this out of the institutions around 60% of the institutions are run by christian and catholic churches so they have a huge number of institutions in their control and the alarming factor is out of the children who are in institutional care 
more than 65% of them have at least one parent alive mm. so they are not orphans actually so we have a very little number of orphans but the others are abandoned children and mm. they are there due to three main reasons one is poverty one is dysfunctional families and the other one is court orders where they comes due to court orders so that is kind of summary of what is happening in institutions in sri lanka that's very helpful and there is this understanding that children in orphanages are orphans you know it's by the name of the thing that's how people get the idea but i think sri lanka quite early on had good data identifying the number of children that had living parents but even those that have living parents all of them have extended family you know aunties and uncles and grandparents and so institutional care is sadly unnecessary do you know where orphanages originated definitely the church has influenced it a lot and it has played a huge role in promoting institutions do we know how long some of these institutions have been around some is more than 60 70 years and do we know anything about the outcomes of children that age out of institutions and do we have any idea about some of the outcomes well a majority of them remain until they're 18 and then there's a small percentage that go after 3 years but a lot stay at least till 3 years mm. and those who are under 50 to 5 the adoption of course i think globally that's the trend where the adoption happens between that age so if you're above 5 those are the children that kind of mm. stay for the long haul so adoption is still practiced in sri lanka in the uk adoption is often seen as a way to have children if you're unable to have your own children through infertility is it the same motivation that drives a lot of sri lankan adoptions it is but it has a social factor as well because in most of the cases even though you adopt you don't want to show others that you have adopted the child so sometimes they do it in a very secret manner so that others don't get to know that they are adopting but when you don't have children or even you cannot have children they keep adopting children i think that's related to that global trend the north to fives in the uk it's often even north to 3 that once a child reaches over that age they're not as desirable for families that want to have younger children they're often deemed to be too broken or have been institutionalized too much to be adopted what is it that activated you what gave you a mind shift when it came to caring for vulnerable children because for a lot of people it's an invisible problem they don't know children are in institutions or they don't know that some of our welfare systems are not operating very well what was it Naomi that activated you in this area so i started my career in child protection sector as a lawyer so then i was listening to stories of children who have been abused and who has gone through abuse and there was one factor keep repeating in all of these stories that is that they have been put into an institution soon after the abuse and the revictimization that they have gone through and all that they have suffered and having child offenders and victims together and the abuse that they suffer from their peers and everything these stories keep repeating from these children and actually i couldn't sleep in the night when i hear these stories and then something stirred up in me and i felt like i need to do something about this and then one day i was having a conversation with my boss roshan mendis he's he's my motivator actually and then he was explaining all what is happening around the world and then he had recently visited australia then and then he explained the system in australia and how it works and how god gave him a burden about churches being engaged in this and then i suddenly realized all oh, right this is what i've been looking for yeah. that was in 2016 and that day i caught that vision and from that day onwards i was praying about it and now god is really burdening my heart with it so i really know that i need to do something yes. so then i got the opportunities and the doors were open for me to go and involve in the policy level 
when Sri Lanka was working on policy changes. So I think more than whatever the formal learning that I have about alternative care, the burden pushes me a lot. Yeah, that's amazing. And if I understand correctly, your legal training has been so helpful in the, as the Sri Lankan government has been trying to write its alternative care guidelines and policy, you've been able to draft some of that work. Of course, yes. I was involved in the process of drafting the national alternative care policy. And also we are currently working on implementing the policy at provincial levels. Currently I'm working with two provinces, the Uwa province and the Nadaun province, to localise the national policy into their provincial levels. And also working with the national government to work on legal reforms whether we could go for a new foster ad or we can use the current provisions to expand fostering options. So I'm involved in that discussion. I think that's a mind shift for a lot of people, actually, that a lot of Christian mission agencies either try to operate outside of government influence we'll just go set up our own independent thing over here we're a bit nervous about the government we're nervous about regulation in fact we want the government to leave us alone so we could just get on and do our thing and I'm nervous about that approach because often it means we're unregulated we're naive about how to operate we're not interacting with the best practice in the sector sadly when you're unregulated that leaves room for abuse and neglect again your training the way that sometimes Sometimes we only see this looking backwards, that the experience of training as a lawyer and developing those skills, I think, has given a confidence that you can work with government. You don't have to work outside the system, but you can be reformed in the system. I think that's amazing. I've learned that from a few Christians who are working to write policy, to draft legislation. And actually, it's a service we offer to the government. And we don't need to work in opposition, but we can work in collaboration. So that's amazing. Thank you. How about you, Suhani? What was it that gave you a mind shift in this area? How did you get activated? I think it goes back to my childhood. Um, I, I don't know if I mentioned I'm an only child. And so although, yes, the village raised me, there was many times where I was alone. And those are the times when I felt like I could hear God more clearly and that his heart for children was burning inside of me even when I was a child. Like he would show me the least of these and to the least of these I felt like this compassion and empathy and so in my teenage years I really strongly had this desire to work for the orphan and so that's how it's a sort of a process I don't remember a particular time frame but it was a process of him drawing me to see things and his heart in all of this how he is just burning mm. to release these children into families. I think that's really exciting I notice a lot of children young people are very open to this subject, very passionate about it, empathetic with children in adversity and really have a sense of justice in the world. And often we neglect the cultivation of that as churches. We teach nice, safe Bible stories. We tell children to be good at school and to be, you know, good children to their parents and to do their colouring. And I think unleashing some of the passion and energy that children can be advocates, that children can speak truth, and then nurturing that into vocational development. I know very few churches that are helping children and young people think clearly about calling into work. I mean, often you hear calling into ministry, you know, so some of you here are called to be leaders in the church, or you could be our worship leaders, and that's good. But very rarely have I heard a children or youth worker talk about some of you are called to be social workers, some of you are called to influence our national policy when it comes to children and young people. So it's an exciting story to hear that you've had that from a very young age. 
I know that in Sri Lanka you have great plans for how the church might begin to make a difference in this area. I want to hear from you about some of those plans and then we can talk a little bit about some of the challenges about activating the church, about giving the church a mind shift in this area. But tell us a little bit about some of your hopes and plans for the Sri Lankan care system. As I mentioned earlier, the majority of the institutions are actually in the control of the church. So we believe that the church can start making the difference with what they have in their control. So they can change the nature of those institutions into family-based care as the first step. Mm. And also, we are trying to mobilize the church community by helping them to think about this in a different way. For a long time, they've been thinking orphan care is something as charity, something good that you're doing, but it is a biblical obligation, right? You cannot run away from it. God has given you a command to care about orphans, so that has to go into their heart. And also, I believe that one of the lies that we have believed for centuries is that family is a biological institute. It is not. It is not. It's about love, care, and the relationship that you have with each other. So I think the church has to start bringing that mindset change within the believers, and also it will spread. Because if we can start institutions and bring it up to this level to influence others, why can't we promote alternative care in the same manner? So I think the church has a huge space to influence and also if we start the Holy Spirit will definitely open doors for us so uh, that is what we are trying to do we are trying to engage the church leaders and change their mindset to look at the issue in a different perspective and also through them to reach the believers and with the believers to reach the community and especially in Sri Lanka the issue lies with families so the church has to start with engaging with families yes. they have the greatest opportunity you go into homes you have home sales in houses you have families at your control so you can use the opportunity to strengthen the relationships within the family especially mm. when it comes to marriage couples all the disputes counseling whatever is happening in churches it mm. can be done in a professional way so that they can help in prevention and also in intervention Both of those are really needed, if possible, to support families so that children aren't taken into the care system in the first place. That's so much better because even the best alternative care leaves children with wounds of separation and attachment challenges, but also to see the church as the solution. I'm with you. And that phrase, you know, that the family is more than a biological institution, that's so true. And, And we know it instinctively. I've met Particularly men, I don't know why it's gender specified in the UK. I meet men that say, you know, I'm not sure I could love a child that I don't have a biological connection with. And I go, really? Are you sure? Are you related to your wife? You know, did you marry your cousin or your sister? You've found a way, who knew, that love can bridge a non-biological connection. Or if, you know, if they did marry their cousin. Um... (laughs) Then I say to them, you know, do you love your dog? <laughs> right? I'm really praying there's no biological connection between you and your dog. So, you know, it, it's a nuts idea, crazy idea that there needs to be a biological connection for a family to flourish and grow. And basic to our Christian theology of understanding our identity as the children of God, there has been no biological connection between us and God. Like we are God's children through adoption. That's the most precious doctrine you can imagine. I totally agree with you. You've got to unpick this crazy assumption that has no basis in fact. It's just a kind of emotional gut reaction 
And I think we can unpick that and demonstrate something very, very powerful. I love your vision. It's amazing. So, honey, tell us a little bit about some of the challenges, though. Surely, you know, the Bible's really clear about this, that God cares about the vulnerable child, that God is a God of adoption, uh, that God calls us to love the orphan, the widow, the stranger. Surely churches are lining up to get involved in these programs and you're just being met with huge amounts of enthusiasm. I don't imagine this to be true, but maybe the Sri Lankan church has proven me wrong. What are you finding? What are some of the challenges? I'm not trying to be judgmental, but I think that the dysfunctions of the church are directly contributing to this issue and vice versa. Mm. I think that it's time to repent and get back to our first love. And like the Revelations passage says, like you're doing all these things for me, but you have forsaken my first love because if you really know Christ, you will know his father heart. Mm. You will know how much his heart is broken for the vulnerable and needy child, you know, the abandoned. That's like right close to his heart. The Bible says, the pure in heart shall see God. The children are so close to his heart. And I feel like that's like the biggest thing is our priorities are just divided. That's one of the main reasons. And I think our church's agendas are different. So because of our differences, coming together for this one cause has been difficult. Those two things, you know, putting this on the forefront of their agenda. This has to be for every church because some churches say this is not for our church. But then that's not the right doctrine. You can't take out orphan care and say everything else is good. It's a part of the package. It's part of one of the most important important parts of the package. Mm. So if your church is not doing orphan care, then it's time to sit down and see why not. Right. You know, so mm. uh, I think that we have to get back to the basics of loving Jesus mm. and loving what he loves. And so I think that that's one thing. And then of course the agendas, the hidden agendas of people, just human beings having sin in their lives and their agendas are different Mm. where they're looking to self-gain and their names to be promoted, not Jesus to be promoted, Mm. but their names to be promoted. I think that the insecurities of man is just making people just put themselves up in their programs and it's not about a program, it's not about your NGO, it's not about my NGO, it's not about any of those things, it's about coming together for one cause and that is to care about the things that God cares about it's really really amazing it is intriguing that all around the world the church has often missed this from its vision and its purpose and its passion there are notable examples where that's not the case and God has raised up incredible people around the world who are passionate about this but it's been bugging me as I've been speaking to people why so many churches have missed it and I missed it You know, for a lot of my Christian life, I didn't see it. I was reading the Bible, I had a postgraduate degrees in theology, and it just wasn't on my agenda. So why did I miss it? Why did I miss all those passages where God defines religion or challenges his people about their neglect of seeking justice for the widow and the orphan and the fatherless? And why did I miss it? And I have a theory, it's only a theory, but I've been thinking about it recently, that I'm noticing that the sector is quite gendered. So a lot of the people that are passionate about the care and the welfare reform are women. Uh, It shouldn't be that way. You know, men should be caring about this. And I told you about the stupid assumption that some men have that they can only care for their own biological children. And sadly, in many cultures, the West included, the care of children is seen to be something that women do and men don't. 
completely crazy when God defines himself as a father and a father to the fatherless. So there's nothing non-masculine about it, but some of those cultural assumptions carry on. And sadly, in a lot of our churches, the leadership does not involve women, whether that's at a teaching and preaching level. In some churches, that's difficult. But even at the deacon level, often churches don't have women. And so the lack of the women's voice into the formation of vision and strategy for the church may be a contributing factor why the church has not been able to lead in this area. So, I don't know, it's my theory. I could be completely wrong. It might be different in Sri Lanka, but do you have an opinion about that? Yeah, I think uh, I'm kind of agreeing with you. The lack of women in leadership has contributed to this issue. And also, there's something that I have noticed, even in churches or outside, when it comes to issues of children, it's always coupled with issues of women. So it comes as women and child affairs, right? right? right. And then it goes widows and orphans. So whenever that happens, the women's issues keep taking priority over children's issues because they have a higher voice than children and also they are adults and they are voters. So their issues are taken into consideration than children's issues. So this happens even within the church and also in the outside the church. I've seen this happening a lot in the policymaking level. When it couples together, women issues get more priority than children's issues. Issue. That is interesting. That's politically scary. I find it as well. So some of the issues that come into the public forum for vote winning, it's health, it's education, but it's rarely welfare and child protection because kids in the care system are not voters and people who are at the poverty level are less likely to vote as well. So opinion formers and thought leaders is who has the loudest voice. That's where the policy goes. But that's a really interesting observation about women and children's issues being put together and children being disadvantaged as a result. Fascinating. So I think there's a couple of things that we can do in churches. And again, we recognise there's a spectrum of views on the role of women in leadership of the church. But to the degree that your theology allows, we want to elevate women. And, you know, if that means that the highest level that they can reach is as a deacon or in prayer or in prophecy in some churches, let's raise women up because they will often be more sensitised to this issue. But also children, you know, as you were quoting earlier, Jesus uses children as a role model for faith. So what about giving more voice to children within our churches and sensitizing children, as you were, Sahani, to the needs of vulnerable children who are their peers? That may be another way we might bring a mind shift in this area. That's that's fascinating. Do you have a theory why, why we are facing some of these challenges? I think the leadership... You know, that's where we're trying to target the leaders, is that if we don't have a buy-in with the leaders, then I feel like we don't have a total buy-in. So I think those leaders, I think there's a place for (laughs) repentance and coming to a place of humility where you learn from one another and you might learn from people who are younger to you, even though they might be seasoned. I think there's that place of coming to be humble. But Mm -hmm. I think we see that a lot in our cultures, Asian cultures especially, the male-dominant cultures, where the women, we say sorry a lot. and <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I find this to be the case in places I go to. I see that happening. In fact, children are watching that. You didn't say sorry, so why should I? So we need to be that wow. example that we're requiring our congregation to be. If we're asking them to be humble, then where's that leadership? You know, you, you need to be holistic, well-rounded, yes. not just one-track-minded of one thing. I think you're right, and... I look back at my own church leadership. This was not on my agenda. I had missed it. 
I needed to repent of that. I think sometimes ego means that you look for the exciting new thing, the thing that's going to increase the numbers of people in your church. And vulnerable children bring a lot of complexity into church life. Things are going to get messy and busy, and that's going to stop me getting out there and adding numbers to my church, because the bigger my church is, the more influential and important I feel. So some of the metrics that we use for success in church growth are actually counterproductive to the kind of things that God says he's looking for in his people. You know, if you go back to some of the parables of Jesus, success is not based on how big your church is. It's based on, well, how compassionate have you been to, as you mentioned, the last and the least, and the lost. And so how can we reframe the success metrics? And some of that, I think, does come back to theological education. What are we training pastors to do? How clear are we in terms of our biblical understanding, in terms of the leadership development and the leadership conferences? Often we're giving people techniques to be more impactful and successful, but we're not really defining what impact and success ought to look like. I think there are a number of interventions that we could put globally that will help reframe this issue. It's, It's been fantastic to speak to both of you. Thank you so much for what you're doing and the example that Sri Lanka is giving to so many around the world. And I know there's a long way to go, but you've making some fantastic progress. Is there anything else either of you really wanted to say that you haven't had a chance to say yet? This is something that I always say when I'm talking to churches. Just think about the life of Jesus. Jesus was not a biological child of Mary and Joseph, but they allowed him to be in their family. Mary allowed a child who is not a biological child of hers to be in her womb, and she carried the savior of the world. You never know to whom you're opening your home. So you have a huge chance, and these children have a huge potential of changing the world. So you can definitely open your home for a child, which you don't know the potential, but that child can be the next savior. (laughs) Amazing. Very good challenge. Anything you want to add? Christ in us is the hope of glory. You know, his light needs to shine. And if we've left them in the dark, then we need to go there and bring them to mm-hmm. us. I think we're so quick to want quick fixes, like these one-time donations. Free churches do do these mm-hmm. community service projects. Mm-hmm. We do visit them, but that's it. There's no follow-through. There's no continuum of care. So I think that if we want Christ's light to go, it needs to go consistently and mm-hmm. regularly in order to get them all out. Until we can do that, we haven't finished our work. As I left the conversation with Naomi and Suhani, I was struck by a number of things. First, how we need a fresh vision for inspiring and equipping professionals to use their expertise and training on behalf of the vulnerable. Too often, churches focus their attention on recruiting people for what we call missions work by calling for church planters or evangelists. And not enough attention is given to the way that social workers, lawyers, educationists and a whole other raft of professionals can be deployed usefully on behalf of vulnerable people. Secondly, I was inspired to think how we might equip children to advocate on behalf of other vulnerable children. There's no one more motivated than kids and kids often have this innate sense of justice and wanting to put things right. Why not release children to be an impact in their families, in their nation, give them a voice? We're seeing around the world incredible leaders like Greta Thunberg and Malala setting the pace. What about if those kinds of young people were setting the pace in our churches too? Third, I think we need to address issues of gender disparity and discrimination in the church because they have huge knock-on effect on the way that the church tackles a whole range of issues, including the care of vulnerable children. 
And fourth, these Sri Lankan women are setting the pace for child welfare reform. And we have much to learn from them and the church around the world. Thank you for listening to the MindShift podcast. Please like and subscribe wherever you normally listen to your podcast. Tune in again for the next episode. And don't forget to sign up for the Homecoming e-learning journey, a free course to equip you to be the most useful, effective advocate for vulnerable children around the world. See you again soon. Thank you.